And this is KPCW. It's 806. Good morning. I'm Leslie Thatcher. 24 degrees here in Old Town Park, sitting under mostly cloudy skies. Have had reports of fog in Park Meadows. Also some black ice out there, so be careful. On the phone with us from the ABC Forecast Center, meteorologist Thomas Geboy. Good morning. Good morning, Leslie. Happy Monday. Hope everyone got some decent sleep after it being daylight saving time and we're just past sunrise since we now have that an hour later. But we're going to get a little bit of unsettled weather as we go through today. So as you mentioned, we are seeing some foggy spots out there. And we've also seen some showers in northern Utah. And we'll hold on to about a one in three chance for snow showers in Park City as we go through today. And the best chance will be mainly through the morning into the early stretch of the afternoon. That chance will begin to go down by this evening. The daytime high in Park City eventually climbing to right around 40 degrees, so a chilly day, but not too cold out there. And then into tonight, where we'll see partly cloudy skies, the overnight low dropping to 27. And then the weather will be ramping up even more going into our Tuesday and Wednesday as our next strong storm system will move in. And that storm system will also tap into the atmospheric river. So that subtropical moisture in the Pacific will be funneling its way towards us. And we'll be looking at a pretty good chance for showers by the second half of tomorrow into Tuesday night. Now, there will be a warm front that lifts north. So temperatures will be a little bit milder compared to today. I'm thinking we could see a daytime high in the middle 40s in Park City, which means if we see the moisture arrive during the afternoon and early evening when that warm front lifts north, then that snow line could climb above 7,000 feet above Park City. So we could see times of straight rain in Park City. I think at the very least we'll see a wintry mix. And then into Tuesday night, that snow line will start to come back down as that overnight low drops into the low and mid-30s. But looking at a very good chance for wet weather through our Tuesday night and will be breezy as well. And then the wet weather potential holds on through almost around 100% through our Wednesday. That snow line will be a little bit lower thanks to some cooler temperatures moving in behind a cold front but still could see times of rain and snow showers on our Wednesday. And then that chance will finally begin to go down going into our Wednesday night into our Thursday. And I think on Thursday, a few lingering snow showers will be a possibility. Some forecast models clear us out fairly quickly once we get into Thursday morning into the afternoon. But on Thursday, with behind the cold front, daytime highs will also come down quite a bit. Instead of a daytime high around 40 degrees like the next couple of days, will be closer to freezing on Thursday afternoon. And with the winds out of the northwest, it'll make it feel just that little bit chillier. But then calmer conditions to round out the work week to move into the upcoming weekend. But going from Saturday night into Sunday, we could bring back a chance for snow in Park City. Daytime highs moderate a little bit mid-swepper 30 Saturday into Sunday. And overnight lows will be going from the teens on Thursday night eventually back into the low 20s by Saturday night so more wet weather coming down the pipeline Leslie okay Thomas thank you you're welcome and with a look in the backcountry on the phone with us from the Utah Avalanche Forecast Center we've got Drew Hardesty good morning Leslie we go from one AR event to, to the next and we um, are just sort of in the quote calm between the two storms here so all in all things are slowly stabilizing um, in the backcountry from that last event um, we still have areas of moderate danger on all aspects and all elevations for a smattering of uh, new snow and wind slab avalanches. Um, but things are trending stable. Um, so again, areas of moderate danger. You can still um, trigger a lingering soft or hard slab avalanche in isolated terrain. Um, but the big picture is, as, as we expect, the danger will certainly be on the rise um, tomorrow with the increased southwest winds. And uh, certainly the high rain snow line up to maybe 8,000 feet. And then whatever the, this, um, the, this next storm brings us, which, which uh, could, could be upwards of maybe two inches of snow water equivalent. So 
Um, we're still in the cycle, Leslie, as we all know, um, and uh, just the avalanches will be in lockstep with this next storm. Yeah. Any any updates with regard to the avalanche there in Upper Weber Canyon last week? Well, we know that there were two buried um, and they were able to get to one of them and and, um, pull him out. And he was apparently breathing Um, at that point. You know, the other one was uh, did not make it. Unfortunately, that that that's our first avalanche fatality of the season. Um, but the investigation um, just sort of is ongoing, and, and uh, we have our preliminary report out now. We'll be um, putting out more information as things become more clear in the coming days. Okay, so who does the investigation? You or the sheriff's office? Well, I mean, it's it's uh, it's a team effort. You know, everyone from the coroner to the sheriff in concert with an internal investigation with a guiding operation. Um, and then certainly we play a major role in all avalanche fatalities across the state. So we have um, Craig Gordon, as you know, is our forecaster for the Western Juanas. Um, he and Andy Nasetta, um, one of our staff, went out there the day of the incident. And so they... I would say between Craig, Gordon, Andy Nasetta, and then the staff of the operation um, would be the, sort of the primary investigators for this incident. Okay. And then you were the uh, forecaster that went out and checked out the avalanche that, that caused the road to close there on Provo Canyon Road? Well, no. I went yesterday, Leslie, oh. to Provo, um, in, into the south fork of Provo Canyon. Um, into what they call the Big Springs drainage. You know, there you have Tempanogos on one side of Provo Canyon, then on the other side is the Cascade Ridge Line. And with this last AR event, there have been very large avalanches um, out of Bridal Vale, Slide Canyon, Lost Creek, Elk Point, the list goes on and on and on. Um, but yesterday, I and a partner went into the South Fork into Big Springs to investigate a very close call avalanche that um, was reported to us third hand in the Big Springs drainage. And this was triggered at the top of the slope um, that broke out three to four feet deep and 400 feet wide. And I would call this very anomalous um, because we have a generally deep and stable snowpack. Um, But sometimes to get into the weeds here a little bit, um, it failed on a thin and unusual snowpack structure. You know, the winds are predominantly out of the west over the course of the winter, and that can sometimes strip and erode starting zones that are west-facing and make them thinner and a little weaker. And so when those thinner, weaker structured snowpack areas see a lot of wind and a lot of water, they can be unstable. And they found the sweet spot and triggered this large, unsurvivable avalanche. It was a very close call. We have a have a bunch of photos and a video sort of explaining the situation but um, it's not representative most of our snowpack and starting zones but there are still some booby traps out there and you can't put your guard down okay drew thank you thanks leslie last year summit county hired its first ever epidemiologist nancy porter she joins me now in the studio good morning good morning leslie yeah so tell us a little bit about yourself nancy why you wanted the job um so i've 
had a lot of training in epidemiology, a lot of schooling, and I was working at, in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins doing familial pancreatic cancer research. And so I was ready for a change. And, you know, with all of COVID, it really kind of, I think, made a lot of us um, kind of reconsider what we're, what we're doing and what our priorities are. And so I wanted to come out and help the community. And, and I mean, it's a gorgeous spot to live too. We can't complain. Yeah. So what does an epidemiologist do? Um, so I'm studying the distribution and determinants of, of health-related events, kind of looking at risk factors, patterns, um, seeing if there's anything that's going on in one community rather than another, or a specific population, kind of figuring out why and what we can do about it. Yeah, so we're not a very large county. I mean, it just seems like, do you have plenty to do? Yes, <laughs> there's plenty to do, um, even though we're not actively in you know multiple outbreaks or anything like that mm -hmm. we still have a lot of chronic disease and cancer and there's other things that um, epidemiologists do rather than just infectious disease and kind of looking at those determinants and what's going on all right well let's talk about uh, some of the projects you're working on a community health needs assessment what's this yes so we are starting the 2022-2023 um, um, health assessment and what it does is it identifies key health needs and issues through uh, systematic um, data collection and analysis and what we're what I want to do with this one, we did one in 2019, um, but a lot has changed over the past like few years. And we want to kind of look and re, just reestablish what our needs and priorities are as a community. And so that we can focus on those moving forward and that we know where to focus our programs and our, just focus our attention on what's really going on. Yeah, so how does this work? I mean, is it that you reach out to, to residents with a survey or? So we use a, a variety of sources. We use um, public data that's available through the state, um, census data, and we also reach out um, and do, we'll do a survey. Um, I'm not exactly sure how I want that to, to work quite yet. We're still in the, the early stages, but we will be reaching out to uh, residents to get their opinions on what's going on and what their health priorities are and what they want our priorities to be as well. Okay. Um, you're also doing uh, respiratory virus surveillance and dashboard trackings. Tell me about this. Yes, yeah, so we have our COVID dashboard that's on our website now, um, but I've expanded to also include flu and RSV so that we can kind of see what's going on there. Those were, uh, we had big seasons for that this year, mm -hmm. um, which was anticipated. We knew that after um, kind of the COVID regulations wound down that we would see um, a higher caseload of, of flu and RSV and some of those respiratory diseases. Um, yeah. But now that we're coming down to the end of those seasons, um, we're going to start um, scaling back on that data dashboard probably until October um, when we see the flu season start again. But we will continue to monitor those those diseases over um, over the next few months just to make sure that everything is staying you know in its seasonality like we expect it to. Yeah, um, and how do you even count the COVID numbers since really nobody's testing um, and you know publicizing that anymore? It's tough, um, but what we can do is anyone who's going to the doctor's office or and getting a COVID test done there, having a lab work done that's, that's also testing for COVID, we get those results. And what it's doing is we're still getting um, 
a feel for the severity of COVID because a lot of people who are going and having tests done in those types of facilities are might be having a little bit worse um, COVID symptoms rather than just doing it at home. So we're still getting a sense. Um, it's definitely low and the wastewater data is really helpful for seeing what's going on with COVID in the community. Yeah, so have the symptoms of, of COVID pretty much remained the same, right? I mean, kind of like a, a cold flu? They have, they've been fairly consistent. Um, you know, we sometimes will see different symptoms come and go, but it's really the same as a cold and flu. Um, those symptoms that are pretty notorious for just making you feel a little miserable. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, and uh, we also have what's being called a Summit County Resource Locator. What's that? Yes, yeah, so this is available online and in the lobby of the health department, and it will help you identify all the local resources that we have available in Summit County, whether it be health-related or um, dealing with uh, your electricity bill and things like that. And we have a community health worker um, who can um, help you get in touch with local nonprofits or other resources if you're struggling or need help or just need help finding um, resources within the community. Um, and you can request um, to meet with her. She's bilingual. Um, and you can do that on our website. Okay. Uh, anything else you want to mention? I think that's about it. Um, but I think our resource locator that we have available right now is great. And we really want to take advantage of our community health workers and use those. Um, They're a great resource for the community. Okay, so you started when at, at the county? Um, in June. Oh. June or July. <laughs> okay, so you've coming up on your one year anniversary. Mm -hmm. We're getting there. <laughs> All right. Well, congratulations on the new job. Thank you. Again, that's Nancy Porter, Summit County's epidemiologist. The annual Spring Forward time change happened early Sunday morning, and while the longer afternoons are always welcome, that artificial jump in time isn't easy for many. On the phone to discuss how that time shift impacts our health and whether a permanent shift to daylight or standard time would make a difference is Dr. Devin Smith, a psychologist at National Jewish Health in the Division of Pulmonary, Critical Care, and Sleep Medicine. Good morning, I guess. Yeah, good morning. <laughs> so the, the first work day after springing forward in my book is the, the worst day of the year. I mean, it's the start yeah. of what I call grumpy week. As a <laughs> specialist, I mean, what do you think of the biannual time change? Yeah, so research actually shows that uh, humans are most vulnerable to sleep deprivation in early March around this transition. So uh, one study actually found that there's le uh, we receive about 40 minutes less sleep on the Monday after springing forward compared to other nights of the year. And the unfortunate thing with this is that other research has indicated that uh, we might never fully adjust to daylight saving time. It might last months, um, the uh, sleep deprivation or getting less sleep during the evenings. Yeah, um, it, and it usually takes until we fall back for me to like mm -hmm. get into that schedule and then it all starts all over again. But Exactly. Yeah, we hear about the increased traffic accidents, heart attacks, other missed, uh, mood disorders after moving our clocks forward an hour. It's only an hour, so why is it so impactful? Yeah, it's so impactful because of something called the circadian rhythm or the circadian clock, which is essentially our internal clock um, that sets patterns for sleep, eating, um, even temperature regulation. And so this is all dependent on sunlight. 
And so with the, the later shift, the, the sunrise is occurring later in the morning. So we're not getting that dose of light around when we wake up or around when most people wake up um, for what we call social rhythms. So going to work or um, doing some of what's expected of us during the day. And so when we don't get that sunlight or close to when we wake up, it shifts our whole, it can shift our mood, it can shift our sleep schedule. It, it really interferes with that circadian clock. So is this the case in the fall when we turn the clocks back? No, um, because the sun, the sunrise would actually align closer with when we wake up during the fall months. The sun um, rises a little bit earlier, closer to when um, on the time on the clock, closer to when we wake up. I think what what people don't always recognize is daylight saving time isn't actually saving any daylight. It's just shifting it. So we have these later evenings, but it's at the cost of, um, you know, brighter evenings are at the cost of darker mornings, especially in the winter if this were permanent. Yeah. So if if it's so unhealthy, why do we continue to do it? <laughs> uh, tradition is, is the best guess. It's something that we've we've done for for decades, and it's something that we continue to do. And as I'm sure you're aware, there's been some. Uh, legislation that's come up to suggest making this permanent Um, and the American Academy of Sleep Medicine uh, our governing board for those of us in sleep medicine they do recommend doing away with these uh, shifting times but unfortunately the recommendation is we're we're going the wrong direction Um, they recommend making standard time permanent Right. And and talk a little bit about that. Um, Why I think you support keeping it rather than permanent daylight savings time, keeping it permanent standard time. Yeah. So the the science is is supporting standard time in terms that it it best aligns with the human circadian biology or human circadian clock. um, And it provides us this benefit to our, our health. So standard time is more closely aligned with the position of the sun, which, as I mentioned, is important because of, you know, the external cue for our human circadian clock. Um, You know, with this regulating so much of our biological functioning, this artificial shifting of the clock time an hour forward causes this misalignment. And so, um, you know, if we shifted more, if we shifted to a permanent standard time, essentially it would more closely match our natural clock rhythms anyway. Yeah, um, and apparently we tried this before, back in the 1970s, mm-hmm. where I, I believe we went to standard time. Apparently it didn't work too well, or did we did we go to daylight <clears throat> savings time? We actually went to daylight saving time, and so I think it, it was 1972 or 3, but yeah, early 1970s. Um, they they passed this and what ended up happening during the winter months is exactly what what we were just discussing this permanent daylight saving time delayed the sunrise until after eight in most in much of the country and sometimes even as late as nine or ten a.m further north and so this was really problematic for people um you know kids were going to school in the dark walking to the bus stop in the dark people were commuting in the pitch black um and so this was a, a two-year, I think, legislation, and it uh, they reversed it after one year because it was so unpopular. 
Yeah. And I know here in a ski resort, they don't like it either, staying on daylight savings time, saying that they just, ski resorts wouldn't be able to open until 10 because people wouldn't be able to get the mountain ready in, in the dark. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, the, the misconception, like I was mentioning, is that we do enjoy these later, you know, sunny evenings um, during the summer. We associate it with all sorts of positive memories of playing outside or, you know, going out after work and, and, you know, enjoying that extra bit of sunlight. But I think what people don't realize is it does come at a cost. You know, it, the cost is in the morning. Yeah. So if this bill, the, the Sunshine Protection Act, is passed, it, it has already passed the Senate, is my understanding, and just needs a house uh, vote in the House. Mm-hmm. Um, if it is passed and we don't follow that national circadian rhythm, how, how can people learn to cope? Yeah, so the AASM, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, they do recognize, though, that there hasn't been a lot of research on this permanent shift to daylight saving time. So we'd essentially be living an experiment of how this would work for us. Um, You know, we do, we are able to adapt and shift our schedules. Um, I think one of the biggest things that would be helpful for people is if they could get some sort of light in the morning. So that's what helps us set our circadian clocks. It helps regulate our sleep schedule. And so you can do this with, um, you know, they call it a light box. Sometimes you see these for seasonal affective disorder. They're, you know, relatively cheap on, you know, an online store. And um, just using that for 30 minutes in a dark morning every day can help set the clock even if there's no natural sunlight available. Yeah. Um, and for those of us who are early risers, what should we have done before springing forward? Um, I mean, are there ways to offset this sledgehammer that many of us feel? One can only drink so much yeah. coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Um, you know, the recommendation is to start shifting your bedtime 15 to 20 minutes earlier each night for a few nights before that springtime change. Um in addition to adjusting maybe other daily routines such as meal times to match this new schedule prior to the change. But a lot of us just do the jump in the deep end method and, you know, Sunday morning it's a little rough like waking up. Um, and I think the, the best thing to do from here on out is just to stick to a schedule. Um, a lot of us shift our schedule based on, you know, what we're doing during the day, whether we're working, not working, um, you know, going skiing, not going skiing. But if you can try to, to set some sort of standard schedule as much as possible, our body really uh, benefits from that. Okay. Anything else you'd like to mention? Yeah, I think I think we covered it all. I think, you know, just making sure that you get some light in the morning when you can, um, setting a bedtime routine, those things are really helpful. And um, I guess we'll see where this goes if daylight saving time becomes uh, permanent. All right, Dr. Devin Smith, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Of course. In the studio with this week's athlete report, I have from Park City Ski and Snowboard, Ski Jumping and Nordic Combined Head Coach Adam Loomis. Good morning. Good morning, Leslie. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so how many kids do you have in the, the Ski Jumping and Nordic Combined programs? So this year we have about 40 kids in our weekly program. Um, in addition to that, we had Gosh, over 30 kids exposed to the sport through um, our new youth development program, Learn to Fly, as well as uh, Get Out and Play, um, and PCSS Shredders. Okay. And you guys do all of your training at the UOP? Yeah, all of our uh, daily training is up at the Olympic Park, um, and some of our athletes have traveled um, and over to Colorado, um, as far as Vermont and Minnesota, um, and uh, actually up in Whistler, Canada this year. Yeah. Um, 
So do, does the UOP have a ski uh, Nordic track, or do you have to go somewhere else for that? So, yeah, for the Nordic combined portion, our athletes are training with uh, Liz Steven and Emma Gerard on the cross-country team, and uh, this winter they've been able to train just about anywhere with our wonderful trails from Round Valley to uh, White Pine, uh, Olympic Park trails, and Soldier Hollow. Okay. Uh, let's see. Any recent highlights? I know that the uh, what 2023 Western Regional Championships were held recently. At yeah, the so uh, we got back from our junior uh, national championships um, in northern Minnesota and then went right into hosting Western Regional Championships. Our friends from Steamboat came over for that and uh, had a good weather window and a great event. Um, and kind of wrapped the competitive season for most of our jumping Nord combined athletes. Um, and then went right into um, our s final Schemo event. So I'm also the uh, Schemo Mountaineering Program Director for PCSS. And uh, we just held national championships, or we participated in national championships um, as part of the Wasatch Powder Keg at Brighton and Solitude. Okay, so how did those go? I mean, uh, do, you have, do you have some good results to report? Yeah, we've had um, a lot of results to talk about on the Schemo side. Mm -hmm. um, we had 21 athletes from our group participating in um in the weekend at nationals um we took home kind of a slew of medals um including a couple sibling dual medals from uh izzy and owen crandall were both on the podium together as well as sam and leah kirshner leah had our first uh female national championship medal um getting third in the u18 vertical race the opening race of the weekend um on the men's side, we had a second yesterday from Wesley Perkins in the U20 uh, sprint race. Um, if anyone's on social media, he uh, did that in style with a 360 off the jump and the final descent, which was pretty cool. Um, we had uh, second or third place in uh, U16 boys from Owen Crandall. Um, in the sprint as well. Yeah, he was second place in a great race. Um, and then um, kind of our top performer this year has been Griffin Briley. He just returned from an amazing world championships. Um, and he raced, he's only 17, but he raced up in the open category, so against the top men in the U.S. Uh, he opened the weekend with a second place overall in the vertical race. Followed that up with a fourth in the uh, individual, which is kind of the, the queen race. It's a... 5,000 foot, 10 mile race all over Brighton. Um, and he was just off the podium there. Um, so explain that to me. I guess I don't get it. Because schemo is what they, you, you, you race up and then ski down. So. Yep. So we have, there's a few different formats this weekend. We did three. Uh, we started with the vertical, which is just a test of fitness. It's non technical, it's an uphill only ascent on skins. Um, fastest person at the top wins the race, starts as a group. Um, there's no transitions. And then the individual race has over a dozen transitions for the long course, and your athletes are skinning uphill. Uh, sometimes they stop and put their skis on their pack quickly and then literally run up the mountain on their feet and then go back to skinning. Um, and then at the top, they'll pull their skins off incredibly fast if you've ever seen our athletes out at the uh, resort training. And then ski downhill also pretty fast on small skis and then go back up. Um, and yeah, we we're basically all over Brighton for the individual race. Very nice. Again, so uh, when they're going down, do they lock their heel in? Yep. Yeah, exactly. So it's a binding that uh, works to pivot and ski free on the uphill and then locks in 
uh, well enough to hold pretty well in the downhill. Right, just a lot lighter weight ski and binding yeah. than somebody would take out backcountry yeah, skiing. Yeah, super light um, at, on the race scene. Um, but, you know, some of our athletes and a lot of the participants, even in, in the powder keg racing, are on normal backcountry gear. Um, but they're just psyched to get out and tour. And, you know, you can still have a good time. You're just not going to be quite as fast. Okay. Any other highlights you wanted to share? Yeah, well, um, prior to the national championships, we had uh, Griffin Briley, who I already mentioned, Wesley Perkins, and Ethan Romer were all competing for the U.S. at uh, World Championships for Schemo. Um, in Boital, Spain, and that was super exciting. They all had phenomenal results, including uh, Griffin came away with a third place in the sprint, second place in the ver- vertical, and then he won the U18 men's individual race by a far cry, actually. And that was our, you know, USA Schemo's one of our best results ever, best junior result we've ever seen. Um, so he, he's shown that he's best in the world, and at this point, competitive with the best. Um, adult males in the, in the nation. Wow. Congratulations to him. Schemo, at this point, though, not an Olympic sport, yeah? Uh, no, so it's actually going to be in the 2026 Olympics um, in Italy, and you're going to see the sprint format, which we were racing on Sunday. It's a, a mix of, you know, high-capacity, short effort with transitions being super important and head-to-head racing. There's heats and qualifiers. Um so you're going to see that. It's really spectator-friendly. You can see the whole thing from the base or on TV. It's really fun to watch. And then there's going to be a mixed relay, which is a little bit longer than the sprint. It's about double the time, maybe seven, eight minutes um, per leg. And then male-female teams, and they each race twice around a loop, so they got to go as hard as they can, tag off to their partner, rest for just a few minutes, and then go do it again. So it's a super exciting format. Both those are uh, you know, kind of made for TV, perfect for the Olympics to showcase the sport. Awesome. So any TV coverage of some of these races? At this point, we haven't. Uh, they did have really good coverage of the World Championships. The International Ski Mountaineering Federation has a good live stream, so um, I was able to get up early and watch the, the boys over there race in the sprint race um, and then see some highlights of the individual racing. And uh, there's definitely talks of wanting to get uh, some more coverage for events like the Powder Keg, where you have close to 300 participants and... Um, yeah, it can make for pretty cool spectating if you can get some drone footage and, you know, the shots are amazing. It's kind of like the Tour de France where if you pan away just to look at the mountains, it's, it's pretty incredible. Cool. Okay. Thanks, Adam. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Adam Loon is, again, the uh, Park City Ski and Snowboard Ski Jumping Nordic Combined Head Coach uh, along with Schemo. Well, Heber City Manager Matt Brower is seeking a new contract. Mayor Heidi Franco flagged concerns about that in a blog post. KPCW's Ben Lassiter has more about that. Although Brower's contract lasts until September 2024, he requested an early renewal with new terms and a city council meeting Tuesday. As city manager, Brower is in charge of all city staff and is the city's highest paid employee. His current annual salary is $175,000. The new terms he proposed wouldn't change that or increase his benefits. Consideration of his request was on the Heber City Council agenda for March 7th. Three days before the meeting, Franco shared a message about the topic on her new blog, entitled The Mayor's Report. She wrote that Brower's request would make it, quote, exceedingly difficult for the city to let go of the city manager with cause. If terminated with cause, Brower is currently not entitled to severance pay, but he could receive three quarters of a year's salary if fired without cause. In Tuesday's meeting, Brower said he wanted to clarify what fireable offenses are and outline an appeal process in case that happens. 
He said it protects him in case he's wrongfully accused of misconduct and the council fires him because of pressure by public outcry. With the change he's requesting, if there's a potentially fireable offense, the council would vote to start an investigation. Then the city would hire an independent attorney to investigate. If that yielded clear and convincing evidence, the council would again vote whether to fire him. Another clause would give him 30 days to appeal the decision to the Wasatch County 4th District Court. On Tuesday, Franco said she's worried that could set a precedent that would allow future city managers to abuse the process. She stressed that she wasn't specifically worried about Brower. The city manager, not you, Matt, okay, but a city manager would say, hey, I'm pleading the fifth. I'm not going to give your investigator ev any evidence on the allegations against me. And so then we have this investigation that doesn't go anywhere because the city manager wants to protect themselves and complete the fifth, okay? And th so that's not going to do us a lot of good. The council didn't decide on the contract Tuesday, instead voting unanimously to bring the subject back later after more review. City Attorney Jeremy Cook said at that time, Franco will have a vote because city code empowers the mayor to vote with the council on the city manager's employment. Before moving on, Councilman Ryan Stack suggested simplifying parts of the new contract terms. He said the 30-day appeal window clause could be redundant and bog down the legal process. He proposed removing that but said other updates seemed fair. I feel like this strikes an appropriate balance because it spells out specifically the type of conduct that triggers a uh, for cause termination, or at least an analysis. And it also adds an additional layer of protection in the form of requiring specific written allegations to be adopted by the city council. Stack also suggested the legal standard for a fireable offense be a preponderance of evidence, a lower legal standard than a clear and convincing one. Franco said Stack was right to point out the redundancy. They also agreed that a long process would hurt everyone involved. I think if you get to that point where your hand is forced into pulling the trigger, it needs to be a clean break and not a drawn out process. The council didn't specify a date to revisit Brower's contract, but said members would meet with him and address it sooner rather than later as a courtesy. Links to the proposed contract and a video recording of the council meeting are available in the web version of this report at kpcw.org. Ben Lasseter, KPCW News. Well, on the phone now with an update from the Park City Education Foundation is the Associate Director of Communications and Development, Jen Bello. Good morning. Good morning, Leslie. How are you? Doing great, thanks. So the program we're going to focus on is the after-school program. This is something that the Ed Foundation has been subsidizing for years, huh? Yes, um, since 2008, as a matter of fact. And one of the reasons we're bringing it up today is that registration for next year for the first through fifth grades uh, will open on April 17th. And uh, after school is critical. It's, you know, part of the solution to our child care desert up here. So there's high quality after school programming, programming at all four elementary schools that is supported by the Ed Foundation. And then also at, um, people might not know, it's at Ecker Hill and Treasure as well. Um, so both of those have programs. All of them include free after-school help, which is which is great. In fact, at Treasure, they're going to try something new. They're going to have some free um, AP uh, prep help after school. Um, and then there's all kinds of um, cultural and uh, physical activities at after school. And so it's uh, at the elementaries. It is we subsidize tuition, so tuitions on a sliding scale. And then the after-school programs at Ecker and Treasure are both free. And those are very student-driven, too. So kind of whatever the students might want to learn about or do something fun or, or into. I know at Treasure they have um, what's called a chill zone, and the kids there can kind of do 
uh, what they want. Right now, a big thing that they want to do is Dungeons and Dragons. And both at Ecker and Treasure, the, there are teachers um, that continue after school with that program. So kids can kind of get to know their teachers in a less formal and structured setting. Um, kind of build that a trusted adult relationship, which is really needed in those uh, middle school and junior high years. So it, it, it checks several boxes for kids. And um, especially at the elementary school, why we encourage everyone to register who thinks they might need it is for staffing. So, for instance, we have a 77 kiddo wait list at the elementary after school simply because we don't have enough staff. And we've been hearing this refrain, you know, with COVID, it's just it's really hard to, to hire people um, you know, for, for part-time jobs. But um, if you are interested, you can certainly reach out to the school district and those are, um, it's a really important way you can help kids and without having to work a full-time job and, you know, donate a few, or not donate, but you get paid for a few hours a day um, in the after-school program. So we hope people to get the word out about that and we hope to have it fully staffed next year. Yeah, so is the registration on the Park City Ed Foundation or the school district website? It's on the school district website. So this is a school district program. So so like almost all of our programs, we are we are the funder or the partial funder. And so the school district, this is one, run through their community ed program, the, the first through fifth grade is. So you can go onto the school district website um, and click find the community ed tab and, and register there. Um, the after-school programs at Ecker and Treasure are, you, you don't register for those online. Those are uh, kind of a drop-in um, throughout the school year. So this is really more for the elementary that the registration will open on the school district website. Okay. And, you know, at 11, 12, I mean, that's when I started babysitting. So why is it that, <laughs> that, that middle school and junior high school students need that care? Is it just so they're not alone? Yeah, so, yeah, of course, we're a community full of working parents, right? We're both, both families work, and um, we, we have heard from parents over and over that having a safe place for their students to go if you're not involved in an everyday after-school sport, for instance, um, and, and for a lot of students at that age, that does not start happening until ninth grade anyway. So there, it's a safe place to go rather than just hanging out at home, um, and, and not being supervised, like you said, you know, kids babysit, but also, you know, day after day after day of not having supervision, that can be tough on a lot of families. And again, it's free, there's homework help, and a lot of activities are provided that, that students themselves are interested in. It is self-directed by the students. So it's just a safer place to go um, than just hanging out at, at home um, without any supervision. Yeah, so with a waiting list of 77 already, I mean, is there any room for anybody else? Well, at the at the Ecker and Treasure, there is. At For after school, first through fifth, there is not. Um, but again, if people don't register because they're worried that, oh, there won't be space for me next year, then they, they don't know to hire the staff. And, and the hope is that... Um, again, it'll get slightly easier to hire people as time goes on, um, but they can't make those decisions on how many people to hire in the elementary school if people aren't registered. Okay, uh, let's see. Running with ads coming up in just a couple of months. What, what's happening now? Yes. Are you registering for that? 
Yep. Yes. So early registration is open. I know there's a lot of snow on the ground and people might be like, I'm not thinking about running at this point in time, but you do save 25 bucks uh, a person on the adult registration price if you register by the end of March. And that is at runningwithed.com. Um, the race is May 20th and it is, it will be similar to last year where we had the eight legs going around all the schools and up to the UOP. We have the famous UOP steps are back. So you can have teams of up to eight or more and I, or teams of eight. And I've had questions, well, if I have more people, you know, can I make a bigger team? And you can just make a second team or a third team. At this point now we have teams that have been running for so long and they've, you know, got maybe 20 or 30 people running. And so they just create as many teams as they need. And of course there's costume contests and fundraising contests. It helps us to know, to prepare the earlier people uh, register to, to know, you know, t-shirts and, and to get everything ready for May 20th, but it should be another great day. Our goal is to raise $350,000 for our teachers, students, and schools. And of course the other wonderful thing about running with ed is it just brings the whole community together supporting our um, schools and teachers we hear from the teachers that this is one of their favorite days of the year and it's so fun as you're running around to see your teachers in costume and the kids love to see that and families running together um, we encourage businesses to to run it's a great day of employee engagement hanging out with everybody going to all the fun exchanges that offer chocolate covered strawberries or um, fun games to play. It's just a great day for our community. Okay, and save the date coming up in April 27th. You've got a educator and student wellness speaker happening. Yes, so this is the third of our series of educator and student wellness. Educator and student wellness is a new initiative, uh, one of our eight core initiatives that we added to in the last year, given everything with COVID and even before that, um, kids and can't learn and, and teachers can't teach if they're not uh, feeling mentally well. So this is our third speaker. We decided this year to host our own panel of experts. So the secondary principals, that's um, Amy Jenkins at Ecker Hill, Caleb Fine at Treasure and Roger R. Bobby from Park City High School. They're going to be the panel as well as some counselors from the secondary schools. And they're gonna talk about how to best support your sixth through 12th grade student. Cause that is definitely, again, a time that can be tough and bewildering, bewildering. I can't talk this morning. I heard your report earlier on the time change. <laughs> yep. And I am one of those that does not recover until fall break. <laughs> but anyway, bewildering, sorry. Um, it it's, it's, can be a tough time. And so these uh, principals and, and counselors are really the experts on kids and can help us parents, um, help us figure out our kids and best support them through through what's been a tough time and is a, is a tough time anyway for that age group. And that is on April 27th. 5.30 p.m. at Kiln. We will be asking, it's free, but we will be asking people to register just again so we can have a count for, um, for food. But it should be a really interesting panel. Those are all fantastic principals and counselors that I think can give us a lot of guidance. Okay, that uh, to register PCEF, the number four kids.org. Anything else you want to mention? 
No, thank you so much for having us on. And again, um, your support of after school, the community, we infuse about 200000 a year. Um, and the, with running with it and the $350,000 that we raise, that goes all back into classroom grants for teachers. So we do hope the community will support. And uh, we'll see you on the course. And hopefully we'll see you at the speaker series on April 27th. Okay, Jen Bello, thank you. Thank you, Leslie. Bye-bye. Jen Bello is the Park City Ed Foundation Associate Director of Communications and Development. The Summit County Council held the second of two public hearings on a rezoning application from Dakota Pacific Real Estate last week. KPCW's Connor Thomas was there and has this report. The application, if approved, would let the developer build a mixed-use commercial and residential community in a zone currently set aside to be developed into a tech park. But there's been loud opposition from Summit County residents. There are at least 150 people attending Wednesday's hearing in person and 200 on Zoom. All told, 51 people got up to speak to the council. Unlike last week, the council kept comments to a strict three minutes each, which allowed for more comments despite the hearing being half an hour shorter. Dakota Pacific CEO Mark Stanworth gave comments at the beginning of the session. He tried to address things from the last hearing, which he thought were unfair. Among other things, Stanworth talked about the existing entitlement, which already allows for development, not open space. This project has become a scapegoat for a regional traffic problem. And the rallying cry for sentimentalists convinced that somehow the engine of change is going to go into reverse. Growth is happening, and this property will be developed. And traffic was the most common concern raised over the course of the hearing. Many residents said they worry about overloading an already congested State Route 224. Coincidentally, some who speak in favor of the development cite traffic too. The idea is that housing will allow people to live closer to work, reducing the several thousands of commuters coming into Park City and Summit County daily. Council Chair Roger Armstrong asked the audience Wednesday night to raise their hands if they supported the development. Just two people did so. Armstrong invited those two to speak first, to hear a diversity of views. Just one spoke up, Jeff Lamb, who has managed Liberty Peak Apartments for over a decade, who said he has a thousand people on his waiting list for a unit, and he usually wouldn't support competition moving in next door if the need weren't so great. I shouldn't be in favor of a project coming in right next door to me as affordable housing. The number one reason that people moved out of Liberty Peak last year was to move into deed-restricted housing, like is going to be built here. As he sat down, one person started to clap. Luisa Diaz-Hill, a local elementary schooler wearing red. But she stopped quickly. No one else was clapping. Diaz-Hill was there with her mom, Ruby Diaz, who spoke about potential community action if the development moves forward. If necessary, the community is ready to file a class action lawsuit and take it as high as needed to expose any irregularities between Dakota Pacific and the legislators catering to the developer. Representatives from Mountainlands were back in the mix, stressing the need for more housing, but not supporting the Dakota Pacific application per se. One was Mountainlands board member Bob Richer, who fact-checked a claim that Stanworth had made earlier in the evening that Mountainlands housing advocate Megan McKenna supports the rezoning application. Richer said that's not her position. When Richard began to mention Dakota Pacific by name, the crowd booed him, said someone in the crowd, quote, these people don't know who Bob Richer is. By the end of his comments, people were applauding, as he recommended the council to take measures to address traffic before allowing the development. Richard was on the county council that approved the original Tech Park deal with the Boyer Company, and he helped create the affordable housing project that bears his name, Richard Place. Wednesday night, only four people total took the position that the council should okay Dakota Pacific's application, more on Zoom than in person. 
Armstrong and McKenna both have said that they received feedback from supporters intimidated by the prospect of being shouted down at the public hearing. But the fact remains that the opposition seems louder than support. Besides traffic, people cited water and the developers lobbying at the state level as reasons for the council to vote no. Senate Bill 84, which, if it becomes law, could allow Dakota Pacific to proceed with development anyway, may be headed toward a legal battle. Councilmember Canis Hart said the council is weighing its options. There are things in play, and I just can't really speak to the details of it, but we will explore all avenues and all options before us. The council still plans to consider Dakota Pacific's application for approval next Wednesday, March 15th. The meeting is scheduled to be held at the Ledges Event Center in Colville. The council received an email from Dakota Pacific saying Stanworth and Dakota Pacific Chairman John Miller will not be in the country that day and asking for the vote to be delayed a week. There is no meeting set for March 22nd right now and Hart said the council has elected not to change the schedule. Connor Thomas, KPCW News. Do you have an Icon Pass and want to ski Deer Valley? Next season, you'll need to make a reservation before you hit the slopes. KPCW's Park Valatesta has more on that. Altera Mountain Company announced Thursday that the 2023-24 Icon Pass will go on sale Thursday, March 16th. The price for a full Icon Pass is up roughly 7% at $1,159. It offers access to over 50 mountains in the U.S. and around the globe. The Icon Base Pass price increased on a similar scale and is now $829. One of the changes that will come next winter is that Deer Valley Resort will require lift reservations for pass holders. With a full Icon Pass, skiers get up to seven days of access at Deer Valley. The Icon Base Plus buys five days of access while the standard Icon Base does not come with access to Deer Valley. Another change is that Taos in New Mexico will no longer be offered on the Base Pass. The only resort in Utah the three Icon Pass products offer unlimited access to is Solitude in Big Cottonwood Canyon. However, people can get multiple days of entry at Cottonwoods Resorts and Snow Basin. People can compare products and access to resorts on the Icon Pass website, which is linked in the online version of this report at kpcw.org. Icon's four-day session pass provides access to Solitude and Brighton. New perks of next season's Icon Pass include a free Outside Plus membership and discounts for Smith and the North Face. For a limited time, Altera is offering a $100 discount for current pass holders that renew. Parker Malatesta, KPCW News.